Thank you for joining us for part two of this three-part series. This is Rob Schooley and Emily Long discussing with George Gregor Holt, Adolescence and Substance Use. Thank you for joining us, and here we go. I mean, sometimes it's family culture to use drugs, mm-hmm. THC. It's, it's their parents did it, they did it, so the kids, well, eventually right. they see it, they're going to do it. How does, a, how does a, the average parent know that, okay, now this is a problem? Where does it go from experimenting, teenagers being teenagers, to this is a problem? You know, young people, unfortunately, part of their DNA is they want to experiment with things. And sometimes they do things that are kind of crazy dangerous. You know, they walk across a log, across, a, you know, a creek that's rushing down, the, which is something that I used to do. Um, or, or they get on a rope swing and swing out in the middle of a river and drop off into the river, not knowing how deep the river is and, you know, or dive off a cliff or, you know, there's. They're, 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 it's sort of their DNA to do that kind of stuff. So um, it never surprises me to, when a young people tries to smoke a little weed or do some drinking, you know, drink something, alcohol, or, or even do other kinds of drugs. Um, but a lot of times when young people do that, yeah, you know, I used to tell young, uh, when I used to do my talks and classes and stuff, I'd say, you know, how many of you know somebody who smokes cigarettes? Well, a lot of people do. I said, how many, uh, how many of you have smoked cigarette? And some people raised their hand. And I said, when you first smoked, what happened? And any of your listeners will know this too, if they've smoked tobacco, combustible tobacco, you cough. So that's your body saying, this ain't supposed to be here. And if you listen to your body, then you won't smoke again. You won't use combustible tobacco again because your body told you it's not supposed to be there. Unfortunately, what happens with some people is they don't listen to their body and they smoke a couple more times. The cilia in their throat gets knocked down and they stop coughing. And then they assume that it's because, you know, that they're, that it's, that tobacco use is not very harmful. Um, when in reality, we know how harmful it really is, especially, um, as as time goes on so um when young people try other kinds of drugs um they have to listen to their bodies so one of the things i try to get young people to look at and what parents to look at is what happens to your body well if you smoke weed then um and, and the particular part of your body that psychoactive drugs affect is your brain so what happens to your brain well when people start smoking weed they get a little forgetful they their priorities change you know what used to be important is not so important anymore and what was never important becomes important their friends change um their activities change uh they um they start to put less they have less interest in school, you know, and we're kind of school oriented. So we look for a lot of those kinds of uh, behaviors in school. They get in trouble in school. Um, they uh, don't study as much. They make excuses for why they're behaving the way they are. Or their performance is what it is. Um, they might start skipping school. Um, so when those things start to happen, and then later on, you know, they get caught in school and uh, that's a real red flag 
getting caught in school um, or, or getting caught in the community too. I mean, we're focused on school, but if you get caught in the community, that's a red flag. So um, when parents start to see those kinds of things, changes in, in priorities, uh, changes in dress, changes in, in clothing, uh, uh, secretive, kind of want to be in the room all the time. Um, there are things to pay attention to. Now, that, that, that those signs don't always mean that there are drugs involved. Um, could be lots of other things. Um, but, but it certainly signals a time when parents should pay attention and maybe have an evaluation somewhere. So just to take a look-see at what's going on. So full transparency, George pretty much taught me everything I know. So I feel like I might be repeating <laughs> something that George has told me in the past, but you know, the, those, those own it, you can own, own it. it. I own it. Yeah. Uh, but the, that idea of access is a red flag. So if they start hanging out with a new crowd that, you know, that family does drugs, you know, that they have them in the house mm-hmm. and that's their culture, that's their business. But now that access point is there. That's a big one. And the other piece that you kind of tapped in is when they start carrying it on them person, when the risk of carrying it, right. You know, is, is there, and they're willing to take that risk for whatever reason for the high or the social piece or whatever, when they start willing to carry it on them to risk that trouble, that's kind of like, that's when we start looking at, okay, something, something's not right here. Um, but that kind of leads us in what, 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 you know, the, 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 the cycle of addiction, what do they do at that point when there's, there's something going on, you know, what, Emily, you had a question about treatment. What are your thoughts? thinking about I was historically you were talking about obviously being involved in treatment across many years and what was treatment like earlier in your career for young people and like how has that changed and what is really the focus of treatment nowadays you know when when I worked in the hospital well treatment at that time was there, there weren't many options in North Carolina um, when I worked in the hospital setting, that was, we were the only gig in town. I mean, pretty much if you had a, a substance use disorder, an issue with, with alcohol or other drugs, you went to a hospital and you went inpatient. It was very expensive. Um, the hospital where I worked, you know, we had a, about a 45-day treatment program and at that time, so this was 1982 or 83, I believe the per diem um, was about $600 a day. So if you went, yeah, yeah, this is $25,000 a year. I mean, a, a, a stay, give or take. Now, now that's, a, that's a lot of money. Uh, also, that was before parity. You know, parity is when uh, parity required insurance companies to pay the same amount or treat substance use disorder treatment the same as other kinds of chronic illness treatments. Um, but back then, a lot of that was out of pocket. So, you know, obviously that skews your population because how many people can afford that? So just to give your readers a little, little bit of an idea, $25,000, I bought, I bought my house in Durham in 1980 for $20,000. I bought a whole house for $20,000. So you're talking a, what, a two-week stay? Yeah. No, it was four, 45, 40, days. 45 days. So for the same amount as a house. Yeah. So um, just to get, give you something to 
compare it to because nowadays twenty five thousand you're like oh geez you can't you can't hardly you can't buy a car for twenty five thousand you know so um but it was it was a lot of money and uh and the the unfortunate thing is it was all psychoeducational which means you know we would do counseling we do talk counseling um and the and to be honest the the efficacy that how well it worked was not great. Um, we had a lot of relapse. Of course, we know that addiction is a relapsing or relapse-prone disease, um, but but we had a lot of youngsters relapse. Um, and it, it, it probably wasn't the best course of treatment, but back then there wasn't a whole lot of data on treatment. You know, we were doing what we thought w- would work um, without having a whole lot of uh, science behind it. Um, now with, uh, especially with medically assisted, medical assisted treatment, MAT, um, the, 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 the recovery rates are better than they were back then. When you say um, medically assisted, are you referring to like Suboxone? Yeah, or, okay. exactly. Yeah. Suboxone or, or, uh, methadone sometimes mm-hmm. they use. Um, I think people prefer Suboxone now. Um, uh, so, um, so we've come a long ways in the science of addiction treatment. We're still not there where we need to be. I mean, it's not, you know, you, you can, you can, it's akin to cancer treatment in that um, for a lot of cancers, unfortunately, they don't respond to a certain chemotherapy or radiation therapy. And so then you have to try different chemotherapy or radiation therapy. Um and it, and addiction is much like that. I mean, the, the, there are several parallels. You know, there are chronic illnesses in, in that when people we talk about people who recover from addiction, they don't they're not cured from addiction because they always they will always have addiction, um, but they can recover from it. And I used to tell young people the answer is really simple: you stop using drugs. Getting to the answer is very difficult. And as we know, um, people struggle for years and years and years. And it is, I just tell young people, it's, it is the only chronic illness that's uh, guaranteed to kill you if, you're, if it's untreated, if it's left untreated. You know, there are other illnesses, um, HIV and AIDS, for example, that have um, really good success rates on treatment but if you stop your treatment, you know you you get in trouble. It's the same same way with addiction. There are real, there are now good ways to treat people, and if you continue the treatment regimen that you're given, then um, you can recover and you can go back to being a productive member of society. So, um, I, I think that that's the big thing that's changed. Um, what hasn't changed, interestingly enough, is that self-help groups, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous specifically, and then there are some offshoots, there's Cocaine Anonymous too, um, uh, they have remained pretty stable and, and have remained an important part, an important adjunct to these other kinds of more scientifically based treatments. So um, we used to tell people you do 90 and 90, 90 meetings in 90 days. And if you can do that, um, you're in pretty good shape. You can be in pretty good shape, you know, and then you can maybe pair back to 
two or three a week. And then, you know, I know people who have been in recovery for 20 plus years who go to at least one meeting, sometimes two meetings a week. Um, That's where have I have to. lots of experience. I grew up in Alateen, which is for children and families mm-hmm. of alcoholics and went for many, many years. And, you know, we were in the same building as an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. So I knew many of those members who were 30 years recovering, yeah, yeah. but yeah. still went to their meetings. Um, but that lens, my lens is through the effects on the family. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, sometimes those rooms aren't youthful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. So there is a need to find um, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous options that are geared more towards younger people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good, really good point, Emily. There, there used to be a young person's group um, in Chapel Hill, and I don't know if it's runs still or not, but, but the issues, if you can imagine somebody who's 50 years old, who's been drinking alcohol for 40 years, 35 years maybe, um, that person's issues are much different Absolutely. than a uh, 15 year old's issues. And so, and one of the, one of the real curative fact of oh, curative is a bad word. One of the real, um, um, therapeutic, imp- therapeutic aspects. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you. Yeah. You get a, get out of the therapy thing. You forget, <laughs> forget how to, how to talk, um, of, of self-help groups. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and other self It's the peer group. It's the peer group, right. Yeah, the um, support and, and the sponsorship. The, correct, Yeah, correct. And so um, it's really important for young people, if they are uh, searching for a self-help group, to find one where they can identify with the issues uh, that the people talk about. So um, it's we really need, and I'm really glad you found an Alateen group because that's another group that's very important but very but difficult very rare, to find. Very difficult to find. Yeah. I mean, when um, I was a teenager, there were only like five in the state. We would travel around and visit each other. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we yeah. actually, this has gone back many years, more than I'd like to remember. But many years ago, um, I had a connection to Al-Anon, which is for family members. Um, and Alatine is sort of an outgrowth yes, of Al-Anon. And, uh, and we had an Al-Anon member down in Moncure, and uh, she was uh, worked second shift at one of the, when, when there used to be manufacturing down in Moncure. Um, she worked second shift. So she said, you know, we were talking about some needs of young people in, in the Moncure school. And and uh, there were many young people who had family members, parents and other family members who had addiction, and uh, they they could make good use of an Alateen group. And she said, well, I'll come in and we'll do an Alateen group at lunch. And so we did an Alateen group at lunch at Moncure School nice. for, um, I don't know, it probably ran six or eight months. Oh, that's She came wonderful. in once a week. And uh, yeah, it was fabulous. It was fabulous. And then she went on first shift and then that, that was that, you know, yeah. so, um, but it was a really great experience for the young people. And we would, uh, mostly they, it was mostly middle school students. I don't know if some of your listeners might not know Moncure is a kindergarten through eighth grade school. And, uh, so we mostly had the, um, the middle school students participating and they would go get their lunch and we had a room and they would bring their lunch back to this room and, uh, and they would have their meeting. 
you know, and it was lunch, yeah, half an hour meeting for lunchtime. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Um, and then it kind of fizzled and we never did find anybody else to take. She looked for somebody, but nobody, you know, it's, 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 it's a tall order to come in and run a group for middle school students. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I understood that. Um, Going backwards a little bit, uh, you kind of tapped into this. So uh, a young person enters treatment. With your experience, what's what's one of the biggest indicators that this person will leave with some sort of success as they enter treatment? They will leave with some sort of success as they leave. Ah, ah. I, I used to look for um, a good dose of humbleness. So by that, I mean that the young person um, accepts that whatever he or she had done that got them into treatment, because usually they don't say, you know, I think I have a substance use disorder. I'm going to come into treatment. Yeah. Usually it's some incident that uh, I used to call it the two by four upside the head. Something happens. You you get caught in school. You get caught in the community. You go to court. Um, you get caught by your parents. Um, so, you know, something happens. So there's an event. And so what I look for is the young person taking responsibility for that event and saying, I understand that I did something I shouldn't have done. And then the next step is I understand I did it as a result of my alcohol or other drug use. So, and that's an important connection because this disease has a, a real uncanny way of changing the way people see reality. So um, we, we call those defense mechanisms, and we all have them, and we use them because we need to use them. Um, you hear some horrible news, you know, one of your defense mechanisms is denial that didn't happen or minimizing it can't be that bad. I mean, there's a host of of defense mechanisms that I used to talk to young people about. Um, when I see that a young person is dropping those defense mechanisms, is saying, yeah, I really messed up. Oftentimes I would use different language than that, but I really messed up. And it's because I went out and I, I got drunk and the alcohol caused me to not think clearly and not use good judgment. And as a result, I, you know, I harmed my parents, I harmed my grandparents, I, you know, I broke something, I crashed a car, you know, whatever, whatever it is that happened. Um, and once the person can honestly get to that point, then there's good prognosis for recovery, because they are no longer um, shielding themselves from the pain that the, that the, the drug use has caused that person or the people around them. You know, when Emily talked a little bit earlier about um, families, effect on families, um, and some of your listeners may be in this situation where they have a young person who's, you know, staying out late at night and, you know, that causes extreme worry. I mean, I'm a parent. I, I, I've done the stay up to one o'clock in the morning and waiting for a kid to come home. And, um, you know, I can never go to sleep. My, my daughters, even when they were in in uh, college when they would come home in the summertime, you know, they would, you know, they've been on their own. So they're like, you ain't the boss of me. We had to straighten that one out. <laughs> but, uh, 
But they would go out and they would come in late, one, you know, 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning, and, and I would still be up. And they'd say, Dad, you know, you can go to sleep. And I'd, I'd be like, uh, not until you're in the door, you know. So, um, so young people need to understand that that's the effect that their behavior has on the people that they love. And once they accept that, uh, drop, drop the defenses, then, um, then they can start on the road to recovery. Um, because then, you know, step four, I think it is making amends. You, then you got to go apologize to people for what you did. And, and, and if you can do that, then step five. Oh, thanks. Step four is a fearless and moral inventory. Oh, that's right. Fearless and moral inventory. Thank you so much, Emily. You're good. Um, uh, I always like came to believe a power greater than me could yes. restore me to sanity. But, yes. um, uh, so anyway, we're, we're talking about the, the Sorry. 12 steps, steps of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so anyway, when they get to that point, that's to answer your question, that's when I feel better about, I, I used to tell parents, be cautiously optimistic. Um, and then the old um, thing from the Cold War, uh, trust but verify, you know? Um, yes. Because, and I used to tell, well, you know, I used to tell my kids, and all of your teenagers, for those of you who are teenagers, they will at some point say, why don't you trust me? And I used to say, I trust you implicitly. It's everybody else I don't trust. <laughs> so... Um, uh, and I would tell them, well, I'm going to trust, but verify, you know, you, you, you tell me you're going to go to so-and-so's house. That's okay. I, I trust that you're going to do that, but I'm going to call that parent and say, you know, my daughter said she can have a sleepover at your house. Are y'all going to be there? And there were times when I would, uh, this, this happened at Northwood once with both my kids went to Northwood. Um, we caught wind that they were going to go stay overnight at, well, my older daughter was going to go stay overnight at, uh, at somebody's house. And, and I, I just happened to be in school that day. And I said, Oh, that's, that's great. That's great. Let me call so-and-so's mom. And, uh, it just, if they need anything, maybe we'll send over some chips or, you know, and, uh, all of a sudden the plans changed, <laughs> which was fine with me, I, you know, I, but, but uh, that's w- one piece of advice that I would give to parents who are listening. Get to know your kids' parents, fr- your kids' friends' parents. Don't be afraid to call them and to verify things. Um, and, and try to be on the same page as them. Right. I think what really also comes out of that is like parent engagement, like just being involved. You just described the situation with your daughter and you didn't then describe she got in big trouble, but she knew that you were involved. So she changed her plans and it Mm -hmm. didn't have to be this big explosion, right? She did something that she could do appropriately without, and you didn't, it didn't have to be a scene. And that was just you being involved in her life. Like engagement is such a big issue. Right. Plus, it happened in the hallway at North, which is perfect. Yes, absolutely perfect. Yes, yeah. One of the real disadvantages of having a parent that works in schools. Yes. See, my daughter is in fourth grade, and she still thinks it's an advantage. But I know that that's going to that that will change. (laughs) This concludes part two of this three-part series. Join us for the final segment where we talk about treatment for substance use. If you or a loved one is experiencing issues around substance use, please contact the SAMHSA National Hotline at 1-800-662-4357. 
For more local information about substance abuse prevention efforts, check out the Chatham Drug Free website at www.chathamdrugfree.org.